Welcome to the second edition of Ponder, casting a new eye over culture. I'm Ronnie Bindra. And I'm Nathan Rainsford. This month, we're pondering the heady grooves of electronic music duo Vallis Alps. They're building a massive following around the world by doing things their own way. We talked to composer-producer David Ansari. Everything kind of just snowballed, and before we knew it, it had like 100,000 plays or something within the first two or three days. And I'm Rob Weinberg, sporting this very fashionable March cold. Changing the world one wall at a time, we ponder one of the world's largest street art and human rights campaigns with journalist Mazia Bahari. Street art, like any other art or any other way to communicate is a medium. And I'll be pondering oneness with jazz saxophonist Matali Shakabanda and how his life experiences as an African-American Malawian has influenced his approach to music with his new socially conscious album, Rites of Passage. I believe art has always been something that can show us a world that we don't necessarily know yet, but we can envision. So, lads, we're back. Part two. Well, I don't know what the sort of normal listening figures are for a first episode, but we did over 500 downloads on episode one. So that seems to me to be pretty good for something that no one had ever heard of. No one knew was coming. No one knows who we are. So, you know, it's a good start. Let's hope the 500 becomes 5,000. People stay with it. People keep enjoying the kinds of conversations we're having and the kind of things we're pondering. Speak for yourself, Robinho. I actually once got uh, over 1,000 views on a YouTube video back in the, my year 11 days. So, you know, maybe that was my, my old following. I've seen that finally, video. Finally seen I've seen that Eddie Redmayne impression. It was <laughs> a <laughs> cute yeah. Halcyon days. Beatboxing with days. a school tie wrapped around his head. So you may have found yourself in Topshop recently, trying on a pair of jeans, but unable to concentrate because you suddenly found yourself cutting your finest shapes in the dressing room to the tune that's being played in the shop. That's just one of the places the music of American-Australian duo Vallis Alps has been cropping up. I've been talking with David Ansari, the musical brains behind the group. For the last four years, him and singer Parisa Tosif have been producing epic electronic tunes, which have been filling dance floors around the world and packing out venues in the US, Australia, Asia and Europe. First, I asked him about the genesis of Vallis Alps, specifically about how he and Parisa met. <laughs> We actually met in Israel in 2010. Both of us were taking a gap year and volunteering at this place called the Baha'i World Center. Well, I, I suppose I heard her sing at a friend's house partway through that year, and I was like, you have a great voice, and I can kind of play guitar. We should, we should make music at some point. Uh, and she was down, and we sort of just connected for the next year and made acoustic music together. And then she went back to Australia, and I went back to Seattle, and eventually we reconnected in Seattle uh, to try some electronic music, and that ended up being our first EP, which we released in 2015. And then since then, it's just been writing and touring and, you know, living it up. 
So were you actively producing music at the time and on the lookout for The Voice? Or did the duo just emerge through you meeting Parisa? I started making beats in like 2011. So it was after I left Israel during that year when I had met Parisa. So after I left that, I started making beats and I would just sort of casually send things that I liked to her. But it was more just like, hey, check this out. Or, hey, like, listen to this thing that I, I made. What do you think? So it was pretty casual. And then it didn't really get serious for us until that summer in 2013 when she came to Seattle and we just had like a month in the studio. And that was when it was more of something where it's like, oh, okay, this can potentially be like a project that we can take pretty seriously and hopefully do something pretty cool with. Is there a moment that you can pinpoint in that visit where things just seem to come together and Ballas Alps was born? There wasn't any particular moment in that month where we knew we were onto something really cool. It was more just experimenting and really hoping that something would come out of it. And I think when we left that month, we weren't it, it, like, it wasn't a situation where we were super confident in everything that we had. It was more just, these were the four songs that we'd written. Now it's up to us to like finish the production in a way that will bring the lyrics and the melodies and really the spirit of the song to life. You guys really blew up very fast. What was that like? When we put it out, it was crazy. Like we just uploaded it to SoundCloud and then I went to bed and when I woke up, like we had like a thousand emails and we'd had a few thousand downloads and like within the next couple of days, the songs were charting on iTunes and Hype Machine and yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. It just went super viral, super quick. Do you have any insight as to how that happened? I think what had actually happened was there's these like bloggers and writers that will just comb through new SoundCloud tracks for like days on end looking for things to write about that nobody else has gotten to yet. And so there was a blog, I forgot what it was called, but the earliest one that we found that had posted us had written and published just this short little write-up on us like two or three hours after we'd uploaded it. And I think it was just kind of a process of other blogs picking it up and other listeners finding it from those sources as well as from SoundCloud that everything kind of just snowballed and before we knew it, it had like 100,000 plays or something within the first two or three days.
So your life really changed after that, going from a recently graduated political science student to being one half of an internationally known group. I'm interested, what's the craziest thing that's happened to you in these last few years? I mean, there's nothing more like, I don't know what the word for bizarre, but like in a good way, surreal maybe. There's nothing more surreal than like playing a festival in a city you haven't been to and, and like people singing along. And we've kind of been lucky to have that from the beginning. Every show we would announce in the beginning would just sell out. And you know now we're kind of at the point where we can choose to play in like riskier cities and bigger venues and just be a little bit more aggressive in terms of how we tour and, and the risk that we're willing to take. But in the beginning, it was like, we were just like, okay, let's just try a show in Sydney and Melbourne. And those sold out in hours. And then we were like, okay, let's try a show here. And then it would sell out in a matter of hours. And things just kind of kept building up like that. And I think, I think even now, like when we play festivals, we're like two and a half years into this. There's not a point where it feels normal. I don't really think about it that much because it's so strange to me and it can be really easy to you know, look at everybody, look at all the hype and focus on all that and then sort of lose your willingness to take risks with your music and to do things that polarize people a bit more. So yeah, I guess a lot of um, sort of crazy mind-blowing moments that we've had, but I think performing is where we get to see all that in action. I find it interesting also that you guys have really done everything yourself from you know having total creative control of your music to choosing where you tour so I imagine even changing the tires on your own tour van. Did you consider a more conventional route as a band? Was there ever a conversation about getting a record deal, for example? I think from the beginning, Paris and I were both pretty serious about avoiding a label because we didn't know, you know, all of this could change so quickly. Like, you know, for the first few months after the EP was out, we were both like, okay, like the hype's going to die down or, you know, okay, you know, at some point people are going to move on and, you know, the plays that we're getting online are going to slow down and it'll kind of just be a memory. But that just didn't happen. And so I, I think because we'd had that sort of accidental success really early on, like we weren't really desperate to start looking for a label or to look for outside funding or anything. It was really just like, we can, we can try doing this ourselves. Let's just see, see how far we can get on our own before we look to turning to a label. And we kind of just have continued like that. Yeah, I get the impression that you're in the music business for the music rather than the business. And I think that that contributes to an interesting discussion about the relationship between art and commerce. Two spheres of life typically seen as contrasting, but perhaps too often also bedfellows in our world. I know, for example, that you guys also released all of your stems online for people to download for free. Does that reflect something of you as a band and how you see your music and the musical community? So I think because we benefited a lot from things like YouTube tutorials or like in my case, like those customers coming into my store and just being able to kind of pick their brain, we wanted to think of a way that our music could sort of reflect the crowdsourced process by which it was built. And so that's how the releasing the stems conversation came about. Yes, I suppose the Vallis Alp story really seems to contribute to a conversation about the democratization of art. I think historically there were art critics or music critics who would define what people should listen to and therefore what people would listen to. But your whole story getting popular through SoundCloud, resisting a record label, releasing all your musical stems for people to use. It seems to reflect a much more democratic approach to music. Man, I hope so. If that's the effect that it has on the people that listen to it, then like, I'm so stoked.
I read this quote once where it's something along the lines of you create the things you want to see in the world or like you paint the pictures that you want to see in the world. You write the music that nobody else is writing. And so I think for me, at least, like I was really intrigued by the idea of making pop music that was still like introspective and like really, I guess, had some like creative value to it that was beyond just getting people amped or something. But I also noticed that a lot of people who are trying to create that kind of introspective music, I don't have, like, I, I don't want to listen to it in higher energy scenarios. Like, it's just not fun to listen to. So I think finding some kind of way of, like, talking about deeper stuff, but, like, also in a way where you could, like, shake your butt <laughs> was was tight. Like, that was really interesting to me. Like, finding the middle ground between the things that make you want to dance, the things that make you just want to think. Ah, yes, the thoughtful booty shake. Yes, exactly. It's more of a refined twerk. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the twerk for the thinking man. from the east again when my mind is woke but my heart had never slept and truth be told i'm ready for the sky to lie with the earth in So we're going to be listening to your newest song, Oceans, in full. Tell me a bit about how that song came about. Yeah, Oceans was definitely different to other songs that we've written. We, we started and finished it much faster than any other song that we've written in the past. Like usually when we write something, it takes ages. But with Oceans, like I made the beat on a plane and within that week I showed Parisa. And, with, and like a week after that, she had the first draft for like the vocal ideas. And then three months later, we put it out. And so I think yeah, that was a song where once the initial lyrics kind of came in we started talking and it it sort of in some sense was like a playful song and was also like lyrically speaking on you know kind of discovering the power of sacrifice i don't really know if that's like the right way of explaining it but i think i think that is sort of big picture the feeling that that we wanted to infuse into the song i don't know how much farther beyond that I can explain before it like either sounds really cheesy or I'm like no that's not actually what it means like let me try this like no that's not really what it means you don't have to explain your art to us lowly philistines yeah you know that's the whole thing about being an artist it's like I can point at something and if I if I feel it enough that it's just art so <laughs> take from it what you will as long as I'm still feeling it like that's all like I'm I'm interested in doing
Now, if you've been wandering around New York recently, <laughs> you've probably noticed an amazing array of murals have gone up with one simple message, that education is not a crime. These and other pieces of dazzling street art all over the world are part of a campaign that's raising awareness of education discrimination by the Iranian authorities against tens of thousands of young members of the Baha'i faith, Iran's largest religious minority. It's incredible how something so terrible as state-sponsored oppression is capturing the imagination of activists, especially street artists, not just in Harlem, but all over the world, embodied in a fresh new film called Changing the World, One Wall at a Time. Yeah, from um, civil rights veterans in the States to anti-apartheid activists in South Africa. The message essentially is that no one should be barred from pursuing their studies on grounds of their race or religious belief. And it's a message that is definitely striking a chord. Even the actor Mark Ruffalo, the Incredible Hulk himself no less, has become green at this issue and joined the campaign. We'll hear him in a moment speaking out for the freedom to education. Now, the campaign's the brainchild of the Iranian-born journalist Maziar Bahari, who's dedicated his career to telling stories of the oppressed to the world. And he himself was imprisoned in Iran after reporting for Newsweek magazine on the 2009 presidential election. That story was made into the film Rosewater, written and directed by Jon Stewart, with Maziar being played by Gael Garcia Bernal. Well, I caught up with the real Maziar Bahari at the London premiere the other day of Changing the World, One Wall at a Time, to find out more about why he's putting his energies into this issue in particular and why street art. Street art is amazing because it's a form for dialogue. You know, the way that you depict things and where you put things, it creates a story and anyone that walks by gets to interact with that piece. This is the story of an ambitious campaign. We fought brutality with arts and creativity. Since the 1980s, the Iranian government has expelled, arrested, and harassed any youth from the Baha'i faith who has tried to receive an education in that country. Now, education is not a crime. 
It should never be one, ever. They would be like, well, what is your religion? And as soon as I say it's Baha'i, they're like, whoa, no. Baha'is are not allowed to go to universities. Oh, yeah. We live in a digital age and we were thinking, what can we do that can be different? Because we are surrounded by different campaigns, we are surrounded by different information, we are bombarded by information. And then we thought it would be interesting to mix analog art, you know, street art, which really reminds you of cave paintings, with social media videos and create something really modern out of this combination of these two. So that's how we came up with the idea of street art. And it's art that really reaches into the community as well. Exactly. And the beauty of street art mixed with social media is that it creates a discourse on different levels. So on one level, we have a conversation with the artists. The artists have conversation with the passersby. Then everything's filmed, and then people have a communication conversation with that on social media. So it's a multi-layered, complex conversation. But it all is in the service of agency, giving people agency, giving people an opportunity to express themselves, to have a dialogue. Why this issue, though? What is it about the issue of access to education for Baha'is in Iran that's really prompted you to go down this route? I think access to education should be a basic right for every individual in the world. And I think the Iranian government thinks that it is doing something really clever by denying Baha'is of higher education. But I think the Iranian government is really hurting the nation. It's hurting the future of the country by denying the country of its talents. And it's not only the Baha'is, many other groups as well. But because the Baha'is are more oppressed than others, I think that if I dedicate my time and energy on the issue of the Baha'is, I can be more effective as a non-Baha'i and as someone who has some ability in terms of making films or producing, so I thought, you know, that can be really effective. In Harlem, there are a number of murals going up with messages about human rights and education. It speaks to uh, people who are eager to learn. That's what's so uh, dope about it. It's good for the kids, environment, you know? Everything. Everything. They're doing a great job, man. God bless you, man. One of the things that is striking, it sounds like the same experience of my ancestors as slaves, and they're being denied the right to education. The message certainly seems to strike a chord with different people from different cultures and different communities. In the film, we see African-Americans, Brazilians, people in Australia, people in London. This message seems to touch a very deep chord in people, doesn't it? I think education is celebrated by people around the world, and I think as human beings advance, they see the necessity of education for the advancement of human beings in terms of, you know, better environment, better cities, better architecture, better lives for every citizen. And then when they hear that there are some people in parts of the world that 
cannot receive education, cannot study or teach only because of their faith, only because of their belief, I think that strikes a chord with a lot of people, especially people who have experienced some discrimination in the past, like black South Africans or like African-American communities. And at some level, for the masses, to actually see street art that has a message which cuts through and speaks? Street art, like any other art or any other way to communicate, is a medium. And you can have street art to, you know, show spaceships or to just doodle, or you can have a message. It's the same thing with film. You can have a film that shows spaceships and there is no message in it. Or you can make a work of art through films. It's the same thing with writing and everything. So street art is just another medium for us. But the fact that you can mix the new technology and social media allows us to mix street art with other forms of art, that's really exciting for us. Residents in Bondi may have noticed a striking piece of art on the beach's seawall today. It's a way to engage and exchange with the community. And the art has this power. What next for this campaign? I think we're going to create more uh, artwork around the world. We're talking to different people in Detroit area in Michigan. We'll have more in Africa in the next few months. So yeah, so everyone can come to notacrime.me and hear the latest about the campaign. The cause is much bigger than any of us here. You know, it's, it's a global issue. Being able to add my little bit to it, I'm excited. Hopefully it inspires other people and one person gets a little like spark to like go out and like make a difference. When we think of jazz, we think of Miles, Diz, Billie Holiday. Albums like Kinda Blue still inspire us while we sip our Sunday morning cortado in our local coffee shop. But how much do we really know about these musicians and their hopes for a more just world? Today, a new generation of jazz is emerging, with youth at the forefront. Matali Shakabanda, a jazz musician, part-time teacher and PhD candidate from Massachusetts, is challenging the assumption that a jazz musician should be seen but not heard. Well, not really heard. Part of this new wave of musicians is taking a stand against injustice through music. Matali's sound isn't just jazz, it's social commentary, and one that goes with education. Education in schools, communities, and education in your headphones. So let's take a listen. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us on Ponda. So tell us about your band. It's called the Matali Banda Oneness Project. And that name, it came from a lot of different things. Um, 
I think at the time when I was thinking about this idea of the Oneness Project, it was in the the summer of 2015, and I had just finished writing, um, composing this the music for um, a hip hop theater piece that was going on tour, and I was going on tour with it, and I just finished that. I just uh, I'd also just started a group, which was largely inspired by. Um, me going back and forth to Malawi and also me sort of understanding um, my spiritual nature and wanting to make music that that could uplift people um, and make music that was aligned with a lot of the things I believe that music should be and also from a from a from a mental standpoint spiritual standpoint but also just sonic standpoint and so I had been doing this group but it was a group with another individual and it started to take a turn because, you know, we had different ideas of what was um, music with meaning and what was mean- what was meaningful music and, and what did that entail and, and how should that look. And I was starting to feel real empty. Um, one would say depressed <laughs> um, from not just that setting, but from also the, the setting of where I was composing music for. I was in a lot of uh, spaces that I, I would say were, were a little toxic. And I think just the nature of jazz and show business and everything can get toxic. It can get, uh, you can feel conflicted. And I think it's important for every artist to understand that going in, but also to understand that you got to have an outlet to where you can express who you are fully. Uh, Because if you don't do that, you're going to get unhappy. And I think that's where the idea of the Oneness Project came from. Um, You know, at the time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Baha'i. I grew up in the Baha'i faith. Um, Did I have the strongest Baha'i family? No. Um, My father's not Baha'i. My mother's Baha'i. My sisters are on the the wave. Um, And and so my spiritual identity was never concretely like I'm Baha'i. Even though growing up, Baha'is were always over our house. I was was exposed to it. Um, I did a year of service in Haifa. but when you don't have a strong spiritual family network, you can slip and slide. And I, I slipped and slid a lot. Um, and I was wrestling with a lot of demons, um, not just through those experiences, but through my own trauma growing up with uh, family members who were dealing with addiction, alcoholism. Um, and, and I think at the time that I was coming to terms with all of those sort of things was the same time when I was understanding that who I am and who I want to be need to also be reflected in the art that I make. And so that's where the idea of the oneness project came in. It came with this idea that who I am, the music I make, the person I want to be, all of these different things need to be one. And so that's what oneness means. It means this idea of making music that stays true to who it is. So that was that. And then the idea of rites of passage, um, being black, um, rites of passage is a very um, common term, especially for, for young men who are growing up. And it's, it's, it's an idea of coming of age. And living in inner cities, a lot of times young black men um, we go through rites of passage groups. There's there's a lot of there's a huge initiative in the states that, um, and the idea is to to take, you know, young preteen age um, boys through this process of 
figuring out who are we, where do we come from, and and how do we become men that can contribute to society and it's a society that doesn't really want us to contribute anything. And so I had went through one of those rites of passage groups and it was so influential to who I am as an individual, who I am as a black man and how I see the world and, and how I want to contribute to that world. And so it felt right that if I'm naming the oneness project, the oneness project for all these reasons, and I'm writing this album and then it just so happened that this album from start to finish tells this story, you know, because it's not just each song fits. Each song is in chronological order of, of moments in my life of how I got to this point of oneness. And so it only made sense to call it rites of passage. This question of how young men and women can contribute to society is a very important question. Um, and I guess exploring it through the lens of the artist or specifically the musician is interesting too, because we live in a time where more and more artists, musicians, actors are speaking out against injustice, whether it be gender inequality or racism, climate change, poverty, war. Other than making a plea on YouTube or going to a protest, what can they do now? Now is the time for artists to really utilize themselves. And if we're going to say we believe in these things, if we're going to say that we stand up for these things, then we got to make those leaps and we have to utilize whatever spaces we are in to speak to those things. And so for me, um, I like to utilize that through storytelling. And I feel like my album, it's, you don't listen to the album and you're not like, oh, this is outwardly a black protest album, you know, but I think just the fact that I am black in itself and I live these experiences then it automatically becomes that because of the nature of who I am, the world I have to navigate, and this is a part of me. But yeah, I definitely believe right now is an amazing time for artists to, to stand up to bigotry and, and to figure out what we need to do. If you look at the history of the world, you know, I believe art has always been something that can show us a world that we don't necessarily know yet, but we can envision.
there's this great quote that a friend of mine showed me and it's uh and uh something about like if 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 it's not this world then we'll make another world do you know what i mean and if that love is and that's what art is i believe art is making that world you know whether it be painting whether it be literature whether it be music whether it be movies we can envision worlds where we don't have to go through what we're going through and i believe that's art this track it's your world it's filled with hope and optimism and it's and it comes towards the end of the album as the album transitions from crisis into victory yeah no i mean that that song it's funny is so that was the first song right that i wrote for this album before i even knew i was going to make an album um and i mean it is a opt- it, it's meant to be an optimistic song when i think of this song i think of <laughs> like if this song was to be in a musical right <laughs> i would think of this song as like a little a little boy or girl right is having a really rough day and i don't know have you ever seen the whiz yeah cult classic um the alternative take on wizard of oz right michael jackson's a scarecrow dinah ross plays dorothy all right um there's this scene right at the end of the whiz where it's the one of the good witches is singing to dorothy and it's like just so dope and it's just so beautiful and it's so empowering and it's so like you can do whatever you want to do you can go home whatever you want to go home and uh yeah like I, th- I think of that song, right, where like there's so many times where you look at a kid and they're having a rough time and you want them to feel like they can do whatever they want to do. And I think that song is It's Your World is that song where it's like, you know, there's that line. We laugh, we cry and we break things. We still don't know where we're going. Um, I think that's so true, not just for kids, but for teenagers for young adults especially, who are, we're trying to figure out our place in this world. We're trying to figure out how do we navigate this world. We're making mistakes, we're falling, we're slipping. But at the same time, like we gotta get back up and we gotta feel good about ourselves. And I think this song was, it's its a—it's an empower, it's a, it's, it's a song meant to empower. Speaking of things that empower us, you mentioned a quote earlier of when we weren't recording about how a quote from Mary Maxwell, also known as Ray Khanum, a figure in the Baha'i faith, where she talks about great things being made under duress. Yeah, you know, it's I think that Rahia Khanum quote, it sticks to me and it, I take it everywhere I go because I think that's powerful. It's real, you know, and and we go through what we go through to make us stronger. Nothing beautiful came easy. So service is obviously means many things to different people. Do you do anything outside of being a a musician in the studio? Do you do any kind of part-time work or anything in in your neighborhood or anything that yeah um so i teach i teach kids um as well um and i do a lot of work with art in the community um through i wouldn't say art activism but sort of using art as a means of having these conversations um you know like right now it's black history month and so for me is the most poignant time to talk about this sort of stuff because for for I would make the argument that all American music was somehow or another breeded from black people. You know, you can even trace country music back to black people because of the blues, which is ironic because right now the scope of country music is the most racist sort of genre of music. 
Um, but one, one point or another, that music came from black people and it came from blues and gospel, which is, it's, it's crazy. Um, uh, and so I have these conversations with kids to be like, we're honoring this music. Um, but also this music can be honored just by turning on the radio, you know? And I feel like I follow a lot of UK artists and even honestly, we can make the case that most contemporary UK art comes from black Americans. You know, um, you know, I follow Jamie Cullum or Jacob Collier, Amy Winehouse, Adele, um, Sam Smith, <laughs> you know, um, they're definitely taken from the pot, you know, uh, Mick Jagger, you know what I mean? Like, you know, he had his background singers of the of Beatles, black women. they don't deny yeah. oh, their, yeah. their influence. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I, I use art, um, with kids to have those conversations to also have those conversations about what what are they saying in this and how is this relevant today? Um, and yeah, you know, I do I do a lot of work in, in, in the community in regards to that sort of stuff. We live in a time where artists just release really great singles, but they don't make concept albums. The classics that stand the test of time, a lot of them are concept albums, but you've managed mm. to we also weave multiple genres together. Maybe you could give us some background as to your thoughts on the idea of a concept album in today's streaming instant gratification culture where artists release you know one track two tracks what was your thoughts on that especially as a jazz musician as well yeah um i think yeah one thing i'm, I'm always cognizant about is i'm a jazz musician who is more influenced by honestly hip-hop and r&b and maybe r&b and hip-hop maybe in that order i think that order would be more sufficing um and so at the time of when I began writing this music to Pimper Butterfly had just came out by Kendrick Lamar and you know, good kid Mad city was also great because that too was a concept album. But to me, the musical ideas of to Pimper Butterfly, as well as just the spiritual component of it, because that album is about Kendrick Lamar overcoming fame, addiction and finding spirituality as well as going back home you know, and all of those different things. And you hear that in the album. You don't even need to know who Kendrick Lamar is. And you don't even need to be really listening to the lyrics to understand that. Like, I feel like that's one of those albums where the music speaks for itself. So in addition to writing the music, you also wrote a lot of the lyrics for the album. Yeah, yeah. I wrote all the lyrics to the, to the, to the singers. I wrote the MCs. Um, they wrote their verses though but um yeah so for the chorus the hook for it's your world for home for uh open your heart and then um uh umozi that's my favorite track songs. by the way umozi, umozi. i love that yeah. track <laughs> times. yeah that's that's the one that i feel like it's my favorite track too it's definitely the track we invested the most stock on in the post-production you know what i mean um and it's just cool is hearing it is because in every song in the album you know when i was writing this music i had this idea of like i had a very clear idea of how this is going to sound and i feel so good knowing every single song sounds how i wanted it to sound like that for for a musician for a composer for a songwriter that's the best feeling when you have an album that literally from start to finish is what you intended it to do 
And so for that, like, Rites of Passage will forever be this this project. Because, like, you know, we we were in the studio a year ago. You know what I mean? Like, I've been writing this music for the past three years. Um, and, and so it's definitely some of the ideas for me are a little dated, you know, because I have other music that I'm writing that I'm much more... Like as of right now, like I'm just more into it just because that's, you know, progress in life and momentum. But um, yeah, like there's definitely that feeling of, you know, I listen to it and, you know, I don't I don't listen to it too much. The album just because I, I was engrossed in it for such a long time. But even before this interview, you know, I was going through it again and I'm listening to it and I'm just like, yo, this is this is the album I always wanted to make. This is something I'm very proud of. And, and Umozi is one of those tracks where we invested a lot of stock into it. Um, you know, uh, the other vocalist on it, the other singer who's, who's speaking in Chichewa. Um, and by the way, Umozi means oneness in, in Chichewa, which is the Malawian language. And it was very um, strategic to have that be the last track because of, you know, understanding who I am. It's like, well, I'm Malawian. I'm also black American. And so that song is a way of bringing forth all these different musical ideas that come forth from all those cultures. You know what I'm saying? Having the MC, having the jazz, having almost like that R&B feel, and then bringing in the Chichewa at the very end was very much like, and, and to me, I don't know, this might just be me. It's like, as I'm listening to that second half of it, I can almost hear Lake Malawi. Like, that's sort of what we were going for was like this feeling of um, going home and sort of like just letting letting the water hit you. You know what I mean? That's like what I was going for in that second half. Um, and 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 whenever I listen to that song, it takes me down this trip and I, I almost feel like I'm back home in Malawi.
that's about it for the second edition of Ponder. But do keep your eyes and ears peeled for another Ponder Extra. Coming soon, we will be finding out what unites one of the seminal works of 20th century literature with a crumbling seaside town in the south of England. And the African theme continues in next month's Ponder. Yes, and a long way from Margate Sands, we'll be pondering an award-winning film that highlights the challenges faced by girls growing up in Malawi. And we'll be meeting the first-time novelist, Jennifer Nansibuga Mukumbi, who at just 23 has written what's been described as the most important novel to come out of Uganda in 50 years. We'll see you there.